Freelance is a dirty word, though. Why is it a dirty word? Because it starts with free. Uh, yeah. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Working to learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall and Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience. Don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 71 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from Salt Lake City, and this week we're going to be talking about freelancing. Wait, when did you move from DevChat TV? Oh, uh, I left that town a while. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I'm trying to decide if that's a good intro or not. So maybe people can fill me in. Should I promote devchat.tv? Eventually, all these shows are going to wind up on devchat.tv. Aha. Or should I just, I don't know. I have some other stuff in the works, too, but I don't know how interesting they are to people on this particular show. Anyway, freelancing. Talking about freelancing. So you're a contract guy, right? Yeah, I've been independent, an independent developer for a little over five years. And I have been for almost five years. So combined 10 years of independent development experience. That's wow. right. Wow, that sounds really good when you say it that way. That's right. And that's pretty good for two people. Because a lot of people get into it, realize, oh, this is hard. And things go wrong and they you know, go back to getting full-time jobs. So yeah. if you can do it, string a few years together, you're doing pretty good. So why do you say it's hard? Because, I mean, some parts of it are hard. But some parts of it are really nice. I think it's difficult because... You know, I was always an employee. Mm-hmm. They give you a cube, they give you a computer, they tell you what to work on, you work on, and you get good at doing that. And you step out of that where you're doing new things, and you have to develop a whole new skill set. And it's completely orthogonal to the development skill set. So you can program things, you can create classes and applications and websites and things like that. But that is, you know, kind of almost a minor part of what needs to be done as kind of independent because you're managing a whole lot of other things yeah i mean there are definitely some parts of it you know where like bookkeeping not my favorite thing to do and how do i track all this stuff so that i can make the most of my taxes you know not something that i necessarily am an expert in right definitely you can alert like do you set up a business do you not set up a business you know yep. what are the differences does it matter yeah so. exactly by the way for answers to those questions i highly recommend you go talk to an accountant um, this is true yeah. But but you should probably start a business. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's worked out for me well that way. And I, I think for the most part, if you are going to go freelance, you want to do that. I also want to point out that I talk about this a lot on the Freelancer Show. So if you are interested in that, you can go check them out. And yeah, so I have a lot of advice. But what I'm really curious about is uh, a little bit more along the lines of 
So I'm a freelancer, but I do mostly web stuff and not mobile stuff. I don't know how much web stuff you've done. I'm wondering what the differences are. Sure. So I rarely call myself a freelancer. I I don't like the term because it has free in it. And people expect things out of you for free, which doesn't work if you're trying to run a business. I do consultant or independent developer Mm -hmm. just as a way to not necessarily differentiate myself, but to say, you know, this is what I do. It's a business. It kind of sets a little higher expectation of what they can get out of me or what I'm hoping to provide. Paid Lancer. Paid Lancer. I am paid. (laughs) (laughs) First thing you do, you pay me. All right. Cost you money, Lancer. Yes, that's a little negative, but I like where you're going with it. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's but definitely some differences. So I haven't done a lot of like web stuff. Like my HTML and JavaScript is passable, but not that great. I've done more backend stuff. You know, before iOS, I should maybe back up a little bit. I, I mean, I've always done like embedded and client work. So C and C plus plus. That stuff was old hat to me for a long time. That eventually leading me to doing more kind of Windows and .NET, uh, more client applications from MFC to like Windows Forms. And from there, I did, you know, more backend. A lot of it was .NET, that type of thing. But going to iOS, that was, you know, I, I should back up maybe. But, you know, I did WinForms for quite a while until that went away. People didn't want that anymore. So I had to do kind of web stuff and kind of backend enterprise stuff for a while. And I got okay at it. I was pretty good at it. But when I got the chance to do some iOS work, I got into it and realized, oh, this is the stuff that I've been doing my whole career. More, you know, client development applications. You know, it shares a lot more with kind of desktop development than it does with, you know, website development, web web application. So that's a big difference. I think the patterns that you're used to building a web application are very different from a client application. Mm -hmm. Is the business all that different? Yeah, it depends. So, I mean, there's different levels of kind of consulting and, and freelancing. I guess freelancing is, is kind of its own thing, but if you look at the kind of consultant thing, you know, I started off doing like you know, staff augmentation where I would just build myself out for months at a time to one company. They would pay me. I would work 40 hours a week for them. And that's how I got my started with consulting because I was kicked to the curb in around 2009 kind of in the downturn where a lot of people were sent into unemployment. I was one of them, and I figured I'd just step in there a little bit and just take on a contract just to keep things going, keep some money coming in until the market improved. Then I figured, oh, I'll find a new full-time job. But it didn't work out that way. I found I actually liked the change of pace, moving to new things every you know three to six months. But talking about staff augmentation, you know, that's kind of one element of kind of consulting scheme where you're working with a team, with a company. Most times, you're generally on site, although you can do some remote things, but a lot of them you're ending up as a part of the team, showing up every day, doing work, and they pay you by the hour. So you get sick, you don't get paid. That's how it goes. Take a vacation, you don't get paid. But in general, if you can keep yourself relatively busy, you're making a good chunk more than you would be as a full-time employee. What I've been doing over the past year or two is switching more to kind of more project-based consultancy, where I'm doing more solutions. They're coming to me for more high-level high level work and that kind of overlapped a little bit with what a freelancer would do versus a consultant. Uh, versus a consultant, I still consider myself a consultant because I'm they're consulting with me to solve problems. But the tool I use generally used to solve those problems is you know writing code, developing iPhone apps. 
Yeah, one thing I'm curious about, because it seems like in the web space, most people I talk to, they are dealing with more along the lines of the staff augmentation, or even if they pick up a project, which is mostly what I do. I like picking up projects. I don't like doing the staff augmentation nearly as much. But, you know, a lot of them still are working hourly. So, you know, you put in so many hours, you get paid so many dollars. One thing that I have seen, or at least have perceived in the iOS space is that a lot more often people seem to be doing it on contract bids. So they say, I will build your app for, you know, $10,000 just to throw a random number out there. I don't know how realistic that is for what kind of app, but then then they work out the details. This is what's going to be in the app, blah, 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 blah. And then they collect a certain percentage of it up front. They may collect a certain percentage at the end, maybe some in the middle, but it's a fixed rate. It's not, you know, it's not going to vary if they spend another couple hours working on the app. Right. Yeah. That's getting into, you know, kind of project-based development where a company needs a problem solved. Well, okay, we'll solve it with uh, creating an application and you give them a bid Mm -hmm. to estimate it and say, but it'll take this long. And realistically, I don't do a lot of fixed bid projects. You know, I'll give them an estimate and saying, I'll block out this time. I don't do a lot of work where I'm going to guarantee it's going to be $10,000. There's generally Mm -hmm. too many variables up front, especially if you're working with existing systems. You know, are the APIs ready to go? Of course, they always say yes. And of course, they never are, right? Right. It's like, oh, yeah, you just, it just crud. It's like, well, it's probably not just crud. There's probably some joins you have to do, and you need this extra information to get something in a format that's mobile-friendly. So I, I generally I'll provide some kind of estimate and some, also along with some caveats saying, okay, I'm assuming that these things are done or they can, they can be changed in a reasonable amount of time if I highlight something. Yeah. Yeah, there are definitely things that kind of vary from project to project, and you never get all the details up front. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely risk inherent in that. I mean, the trade-off is is that, you know, if you vastly overbid your project and they're happy with the result for what they paid, you know, your effective rate for your time is much higher. But, yeah, a lot of times there's, you know, there's just as much downside. You know, you, you go over by that amount and then, you know, it, it's a little harder to eat, <laughs> I guess. Or you have right. to put in more time than you initially allotted to it. Yeah, that goes back into one of the kind of the skills you mentioned before about what's different between a developer and being a consultant or being a freelancer is just managing that, mm-hmm. making sure the client has expectations of what they're going to get along with kind of a relative budget, but you're also managing all the things that don't happen that you expect them to happen. You know, how do you manage that relationship? Because, you know, giving a fixed bid up front, you know, okay, that's waterfall development. How well has waterfall development worked in your world? You know? <laughs> Yeah, but um, the flip side is is that a lot of times they're stuck on a particular budget or, you know, they have some other limitation that, you know, really kind of forces them into having that be the best fit for them. And so sometimes you really do need to uh, accommodate them that way. But in those cases, I usually stack the risk deck much more in my favor so that, you know, if something does go horribly wrong, I'm not out another however much I, you know, time I allotted to the project without getting okay. compensated for it. So if you've got a client that has a set budget, which happens, you know, we've got 10 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand to work on this and they want you know, 15 grand worth of features. Well, how do you manage that? So usually I'll give them a bid. So if it's 15 grand worth of features, I'll probably bid them somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 grand, 
if I feel like it's particularly risky because it depends on the, the features that they want put in and it depends on what my experience is. So there are a lot of things usually in a project that I can look at and say, yes, that's thousand dollars worth of work, you know, and I know that I'm going to hit pretty darn close to thousand dollars worth of work for it. And then there are the couple of things that are the outliers that it's like, I've never done this before, or I've done something like it, but it's nuanced enough to where there's some risk in it for me where I'm saying, okay, I don't know, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, one to $2,000 for that particular thing, you know, or 500 to $1,000, you know, just depending on the size of it. And so I will build in, you know, a buffer in there for kind of the worst case scenario. And I figure I won't hit worst cases on all of them. So I don't bid out like my absolute worst case estimate, but I, I do bill at, you know, higher than what I think it's going to take realistically to do because there's always something. Right. There's something a little thing. And, you know, part of the solid you know, methodologies that we've been learning over the past, you know, 10, 20 years is that what you asked for mm-hmm. is probably not what you want. You can say you want these things, but once people see it, they have changes. So yeah. I try and leave room for that in the estimates. But what I've really found interesting, what I, what I try to do is to do kind of an agile workflow. You know, not capital A, but small a, agile. Do things in small iterations, get them to it, get that part complete, let them see it. And if they want, want to make changes, they can do it early in the game before it gets too far into it. And I've talked to some people that have had pretty good success with it. But it's not very widespread. I think the industry is very focused on, okay, make a bid, protect yourself, and make it a fixed price bid. Yeah. Is that what you're seeing? Most of the iOS developers who are consultants or contractors, it seems like that's what I'm seeing. And it's just because most of the businesses they're working for, like I said before, are in that position where they said, okay, we're willing to spend X dollars on having an iOS app for our product. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they just make sure that their bid comes in or around there. And then, you know, they just do it for that price. The happy middle ground that I've seen some people work out, and I've seen that work too, is where they effectively have a weekly rate. So, because if you do a fixed bid, you have to lock in the features. So you say, this is what I'm going to accomplish in great detail so that, you know, if you don't deliver everything they want, but you deliver everything in the statement of work, then you get paid, you know, you can go after them and and get paid. Otherwise, you don't. But one thing I've seen work is instead of doing that, they have a weekly billing. And so what you do is you say, I cost, you know, three grand a week. And, you know, uh, my work week looks like this. You'll be the only client I'm working on for that week. And then you can be a little more agile about it because at the end of the week, you sit down and you say, here's what I did this week, you know. And then you can get feedback and you can tweak the requirements based on what you've learned over the last week building the project. And so then you're not locked in on a design that may not be what you want when you get to the end. Definitely. I've definitely tried to move forward into a a weekly type arrangement where we can get a rough outline of kind of features they want. And I'll say, okay, this will take about this long. You know, if we make a down payment, I can start working on it at this time in this future, which allows me to kind of lock times out and not get overbooked. It's been a challenge. I haven't really been able to pull off weekly billing mm-hmm. um, completely, but I've been able to get down to you know one or two clients a week for most weeks. It, this it week is an exception. Yeah, and this week is, is an exception. I've dealt with like five clients today. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's always hard. I don't know if we're really doing justice for freelancing. Uh, I'm kind of curious. How did you get started freelancing? 
You so, like, tell like someone a, to take this job and shove it. Well, so like a baby eagle sitting in its nest one day. One day, the mama comes and just throws you out of it, and you're <laughs> on your you're on your way to the ground. So, no, I was laid off in 2009, along with a big chunk of the company, uh-huh. and just had to figure out a way to keep money coming in. I was looking around for another full time job because I was I was always the full time guy. I was like, my dad told me early on when I was looking for a job, says, you know. Get in there, do a good job, stay there for a number of years. It'll look good on your resume. You'll be seen as reliable, and you'll be able to find another job when you want to. And that was always my approach from the beginning of my career. Until about 2009, Mr. Reliable Employee gets kicked to the curb. And I was looking around for other full-time work. And I did WinForms back then, which is about as valuable as WinForms is right now. That's the .NET (laughs) kind of Windows application thing that he did, you know, five, ten years ago. And I was good at it. I was, you know, I was a guy who could solve a lot of problems. I was a good developer. You know, I knew object-oriented stuff. I had done C++ for a long time and did C Sharp. But that wasn't quite what people were looking for anyway. So I was just like, okay, if I could find a job, I was looking at at least a $10,000 a year pay cut. Just because 2009, the market was pretty bad. So I figured, you know what, I'm just going to pick up a contract. So I ended up working with one of the local staff AUG consulting companies. And I was able to find a a contract where they needed someone who knew a little C++, knew a little C-sharp, could do some database stuff, and I got in there and found I liked it. So from there, I, I did more you know, staff AUG type work, initially through kind of local consulting companies. So one of the first things you can do if you, if you want to get into consulting, there's tons of people out there trying to find you work. So if you don't have a great connection, you have a first step of people that are looking to connect you with some company that would like you to work. And that's what I did until I realized that some people around me didn't go through these middlemen. They had headhunters in the consulting companies, and they, they found their own clients. And I was like, oh, well, that's cool. Well, how do you do that? It's like, well, you get out there, you network, you talk to people. They know who you are, and when they need some work done, they think of you, and you bring them in there. And so instead of giving 20, 30, you know, maybe 40 bucks an hour to a consulting company, you know, that can go in your pocket. So that's one thing I tried to do. And so I did that pretty successfully as staff log. I was able to go without going to the consulting companies or the headhunters for a few years until I realized, you know, if I'm going to step it up a bit, I'm going to need to break out and do more project-based stuff and be more of the consultant, the expert. And that's what I've been doing for the past year or so. And it's going pretty well. I mean, I've been fully booked into the next month or two. So it's going pretty well at a rate I'm pretty happy with. Awesome. I, I want to tell my story a little bit too. I, I was laid off in 2010. So yeah, the baby eagle throws you out of the nest. Yeah, all that stuff. And I was pretty happy in that job. Um, I'd had a few other jobs. It seemed like the jobs I liked, I couldn't hold on to. They'd either wind up laying me off or they would change and become a job I didn't want to keep. Or I would wind up in a job I didn't like and they'd want to keep me forever and ever and ever. And so anyway, so I got laid off. And I had been thinking about going freelance for a while, or at least, you know, starting my own business, building my own product, something like that. And anyway, I had gotten a bonus and some severance, so we were okay for a little while. And I talked to my wife about going freelance, and she totally freaked out. And so I said, okay, well, I've got this contract. I found a contract pretty fast. And it turned out that I completely underbid everybody else, and that's why I got it. But, you know, that's another discussion for another day. Or maybe we can talk about setting rates here in a minute, but... And it was staff augmentation. It was for a, con- a consulting company out here in Utah. And anyway, I was working for them and looking around for other work. And I had a few other people help me find other contracts. 
And I finally went to my wife and I said, look, I'm tired of winding up in these jobs where, uh, you know, I wind up losing them or, you know, not wanting to keep them after a certain period of time. So, you know, I'm going to be really picky and we're going to live on this money that we've got sitting in the bank, you know, and, and see how things go. And by the time I found a job that it was actually turned out to be a 15 grand raise. And that was if I got all my bonuses at my previous job. By the time I got that offer, I had two contracts that I was working and was in talks with several other potential clients. It just worked out. And so I I looked at my wife and I said, I am paying the bills with the freelancing, so I'm going to stay freelance. And she was okay with that. Yeah, you've highlighted a very big step in that progression, you know, getting your spouse on board. Oh, yeah. That's that's huge. If, If you're fighting that battle at home, you might as well not do it. And you had to sit down and explain the pros and cons. I, I went through the same conversations. Like, you know, every every three or six months when my contract would come up, I'd be out interviewing, networking, going, you know, trying to find out the next line of work. And it took me away from being at home and being a husband and things like that. But we sat down and said, well, here's the trade-off. So if I get an employee, if I be a full-time job, I don't have to do this type of thing. I probably should just as kind of career maintenance keeping a line because I think as people tend to find out in industry, just because you have a full-time position doesn't mean you have stability Mm -hmm. because this is an industry that changes. So you have an illusion of stability, but that's not how it works. And it's interesting in your case, like you actually had to live off some savings for a while while you made the jump. So how did that conversation go? Well, the thing is, is it wasn't money that we had put into the bank. It was actually money that I had received. So right before I got laid off, we had done this major push uh, the kind of major push that you do once in your career and then say never, ever, ever again. We were working like 80-hour weeks for a month, but got this huge bonus, and you know it was like six grand or something. And then I got two weeks severance on top of that. And so we had a good month, month and a half's worth of money in the bank you know, to live on while we figured this stuff out. And... By going out, so it wasn't a conversation of let's take our savings and you know live on it. It was we got this money from the you know from the last job right when I got laid off. So we're going to live on that and figure this out. So it wasn't a conversation like you know hard-earned money that we've been putting away for a while. It wasn't that hard a conversation. It was it was really just you know all right. Well, this is more or less a big severance check while we get this stuff figured out. So that's good. Yeah, another big lesson that I, I learned is what net 30 means. Net I started 30. off, <laughs> I started off when I finally went to pen, independent and started my own company. I'm like, Oh great. I'll be making more money. It'll be fantastic. And I didn't realize or didn't quite calculate that if you say net 30 and you bill once a month, it could be 60 days before you're actually getting a check. Yep. So that's one thing to figure out. If you're looking to make the jump, you might be making more money, but there might be a gap before you actually get paid. Yeah, one thing that I found helps with that is if I get a deposit up front because that can soften things a little bit. You have to be a little careful with that because if your last invoice doesn't you know, absorb the deposit, then a lot of times you wind up having to pay them back. And if you've spent the money, then that can get you in trouble. But then at least you have something for those 60 days while you figure things out. I actually bill net 15, and I bill the 15th and 30th, 31st, whatever the last day of the month is. And that seems to work out pretty well. Though when I, I've been really looking at going to weekly billing where I actually bill for the week up front and then 
so it's like, okay, you're going to buy another week. I've set aside so many weeks for you. And, you know, then I can just move people up in the queue if they say, no, I'm not going to buy the next week. Uh, definitely. That's the model I'm, I'm working towards. So most of my work for the past three or four months has been paid up front. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll block off this time for you. I can block it off when I get half of that payment. So yeah. that's, that's been working pretty well. And that relies you from leaving a, a huge buffer. I mean, you still want to buffer at least three months of living expenses just so you can be comfortable and not yes. get forced into taking projects or gigs that you don't want. Absolutely. You know, keep working on things that are moving your business forward. But definitely, yeah, get a buffer. That's one thing I learned early on. Yep. Yeah, and there have been times where I haven't had it and had things slow down, and that's no fun. Yep. So you definitely want to do that. That's when you're cruising ODES for PHP jobs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Seven bucks an hour, I'll take it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm a little curious. How, how do you set your rate? So a lot of people ask me this, and this is this is the million-dollar question if you're going off onto your own. Like, what it's should I charge? Dollars? It's a million dollars. It's a million-dollar question. So if I had the answer for you, it might be worth a million dollars. But I tell people, talk to people. I yeah. think people start from the wrong perspective. They're like, okay, well, I was making 90000 100000 and if I work 2,000 hours, then I can make about the same amount of money at 50 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. This is wrong. This is not the way to set your rates. <laughs> um, that's bad. <laughs> yep. That's bad. It's very bad advice. I set my rate. I mean, I get out there. I talk to people. What are other people making? People that are as experienced with me working with similar type clients. And for Staff Aug, that's one range. If you're working with a consulting company, that's a different range because they're taking 20, 30, 40. They could be taking 50% of your paycheck and you wouldn't know. But, you know, I also talk with the people, the consulting companies in town, people that are doing iOS development, uh, the good ones. What what are their rates? You know, like, do you know the people that are actually doing the work? You know, I know who's doing the work uh, for the companies in town. And I say, you know what, I provide a good value at kind of this rate compared to what a lot of the other companies are doing because there are some really good development companies with some really solid people. And I've worked with those companies, but there's a lot of people charging the top rates that just have good salespeople going out there and the people actually doing the work are, you know, average at best. I found I can kind of set my rates with along kind of the top end of the consulting companies and I'm doing fairly well. Yeah, I tend to tell people the same thing. You know, you go you go talk to the people out there, especially other freelancers, find out what the rates are. And yeah, and then just compare it, you know, you adjust it for what you can do. I also really like what you said about, you know, the salary thing. And Generally, what I tell people is I'm like, okay, well, sit, you need to sit down and you need to figure out not just what your salary was, but, you know, take into account your benefits, take into account, you know, the other things that you now have to pay for because you're a freelancer, such as your equipment, etc. And then once you've got that all figured out, then you can actually break that down so that you can figure out what you have to make in order to maintain what you've got. Right. And then a lot of times you'll find that you can get a rate that's higher than that. But at least then, you know, if I go below this, I'm going to have to start cutting stuff out of my lifestyle. Right. And do you think you work 52 weeks? This is wrong. You know, you work in 47 weeks because you got 10 days of vacation for just the average stuff, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and you're probably going to take a vacation, mm-hmm. you know, three weeks off. What you don't figure on is you have to wait a week or two to sign a contract because you thought you're all ready to start and something has messed up the contract and you're waiting two weeks to get that signed. Yep. That's something that happens, and your rate has to kind of build that 
at risk into it. I talked to a lot of companies, and they're like, well, your rate's too high. Like, okay, well, what did the previous guy work for? It worked for this, and it, it'll be like half my rate. Mm-hmm. I'll look at the code, and I'm like, okay, well, I mean, this code is reasonable. It's not like they went off into, you know, some terrible developer, reasonable developer, but what they were billing at was not a sustainable rate, you know, because they, they miss a week or two of work, and all of a sudden they can't pay the bills, and that's when the full-time job starts looking very... Right, because very solid, very solid to again. the same paycheck every week, every however often. Right. So, I mean, the people that are not charging enough to have that buffer are the people that get out of it. So, like, yeah, we had this guy, but he's he, he can't work for us anymore. Like, well, do you think there's a reason? There's probably a correlation there, you know? Yep. But that's part of the coaching process. And I think a big deal is just find the clients that, that understand their opportunity cost of non-working software. Because if they don't, if if their business is not hurt, if their software doesn't work, it doesn't matter what your rate is. You're still costing them money. You know, yep. absolutely. And one other thing that I, I really just have to, you know, I say this all the time, but the most important thing you can do as a contractor is communicate. And if you're communicating your value well, if you're communicating what you got done, you're communicating why things are going to be late or why they're going to get done ahead of time. You know, communicate, communicate, communicate. Then a lot of times you can actually get around a lot of these things, you know, at least during the contract. When you're actually doing the sales, you know, and overcoming those objections, I mean, yeah, you have to either find companies that understand uh, why it's worth it to pay you what you're asking for, or you have to do, uh, help them understand that. And that's where the things that James is talking about come in, you know, have them really understand what it costs them to not have their software work. Definitely. I, I like what you said. I, I think I got this from you. ABC, always be communicating. Yeah. So the traditional ABC is always be closing. But the thing is, is that sales, your contracts, everything else that you're doing, it all really boils down to communication. Uh, a good salesperson is a good communicator. I mean, they communicate the value of what they're offering and they communicate it in such a way to where it becomes a no-brainer for them to buy it. And that's something that you have to do. And, and this is something that I really want to address, and it's something that I address when I talk about freelancing, especially when I'm giving talks about freelancing, is that sales isn't about tricking somebody into giving you money for something, you know, or, you know, selling them a lemon. You know, a lot of times sales sales is associated with these people who talk really fast and, you know, are really kind of oily, sleazy sales, snake oil sales people. And the the issue is, is that those people really, especially in this day and age where you can actually go and look them up on Google and find out if they're a scam, you can find out pretty darn fast that somebody is, is selling you garbage. And so when it really comes down to it, what it's going to take is communication. And so if you can sit down and you can clearly articulate, here's what I offer, here's what I do, here are the problems I solve, here's the solution you're going to get, here's why it makes sense for you, it won't matter so much what your price tag is because as long as it's a reasonable return on investment for them, you know, you can ask them for a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars an hour, or you can, you know, $3,000 a week, $5,000 a week, you know, as long as it's within that tolerance for them and they see that the pain's going to go away or the problem's going to be solved or the solution's going to be built you know, they're fine. And, and so really what it comes down to is communication. So if you're worried about sales and you've done any kind of project uh, proposals or 
convinced your boss to let you work on a, a new project or anything like that, you've basically already done selling. And the only difference is, is that with your boss, uh, the price tag was my salary for the weeks I spend working on this. And in, in the case of freelancing, you actually set that price and you convince them to pay it. Definitely. I mean, how much effort, how much time do you actually do in the sales process? So that's a trick question in the sense that, um, so some things are clearly marketing and some things are clearly sales and there are some things that are kind of in between that can kind of go in either way. If you're talking about sales from the time I get like an email or phone call from a potential client, it really depends on the client. And what it really boils down to is how long does it take me to understand what they want and to articulate to them the value that I offer. And so sometimes things are really complicated or there are some hoops that they have to jump through on their end, you know, with their boss or getting approval or this, that, or the other. And so sometimes I really have to do some in-depth work in order to get the client. And in other cases, I talk to them for over lunch and then I get a phone call back saying, all right, we decided to hire you. So, you know, it, it just depends. But what it really boils down to for me is that I want to get to know them. I want to build a relationship with them, not just, this isn't just about, you know, finding out what they want and telling them I can give it to them, but actually building a relationship with them, acting like they're human, treating them like they're human, because they are. And I really work better with people that I like and identify with anyway. And so, you know, once I have that rapport, once I have that relationship, you know, and we actually start working on something together, you know, that's when things really start to pay off for me. So, yeah, I mean... On a per-client basis, it's really hard to say, but at least a few hours for everyone that I get. And probably a few hours for everyone I don't get, too. But, um, you so know... Where, where do you find time for that? How many how many hours are you billing versus doing overhead and sales? So right now, it's kind of weird because I'm actually working more on products for my business than actually trying to find new clients. And I'm kind of in a lull. So I've got I've got a couple of people that I'm doing work for on open-source software... And so it's just kind of maintenance stuff here or there. And then, you know, I spend I spend probably an hour a day just trying to find new clients. But, yeah, I, I try and follow up with people every week or, you know, maybe a little less often if you know, depending on where the relationship is and, you know, what they've got going on. But, yeah, I probably spend several hours a week. I probably wind up billing 15 to 20 hours a week when I've actually, you know, full-on working but you also have to realize that I do a lot of marketing in the podcasts and things like that. So, you know, the podcasts, I probably spend, you know, six to eight hours a week podcasting. And to be honest, that's really what I enjoy doing um, is writing code and showing other people how to do it. And so I'm starting to try and move more that way, which is why I've been working on devchat.tv and why I've been working on some of the other things that I've got going on. But yeah, I'm usually billing 15 to 20 hours a week. And then I probably got uh, eight to 10 hours into marketing. And then I spent a couple hours every week doing all of the business stuff, you know, the bookkeeping and this, that, and the other. And then, you know, I try and spend about four or five hours on sales every week. So that's actually talking to prospects or, you know, emailing old clients, potential clients, current clients that I've already identified. And then, yeah, I work on other things, you know, so I'm, I'm working on the infrastructure for devchat.tv or working on other projects that I think are going to pay off one way or the other. And so, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time there. Yeah, you definitely highlighted one important point for freelancing, especially if you're moving beyond the staff hog thing. 
don't figure you're going to work 40 hours a week. Yeah. There's too there's too much overhead. And if I build in a full eight hour day, the last thing I want to do is start writing emails, you know, chatty emails and doing business type stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm fully booked at 30 hours a week. That's where I, I try to be. Past month or two, I've been over that, but I've also backed off on a lot of the more marketing and sales type things. But so far, I'm, I have enough inbound stuff that it's going fine. But I definitely, you know, I don't want to work 40 hours a week or be billing 40 hours a week. Yeah. A lot of times you'll talk to a client like, yep, we want you for 40 hours a week. You're like, well, hold on. Let's take a step back because if you own a full-time job and put in 40 hours, how much of that time is wasted generally? How much time are you actually doing actual real <laughs> real development work? I think if most it, people... If you're being honest, half. Right. I mean, you get you know, meetings, which you have to go to, which take out your attention span for two to three hours. So that's wasted. But I mean, if I'm really focused, I can get as much done in five to six hours as I was doing eight hours. So, but that's one thing you have to figure your rate is you're probably not billing 40 hours a week. So make sure your rate is at a point where you can work less hours and still get stuff done. You have to and clarify when, bills. when I said half, what I meant by that was I've always been in a position in the companies that I've worked for, even as a developer to where people were coming up to my desk a lot, you know, asking questions and talking to you and stuff. This is one of the big pluses for me with, freelancing is like i shut my door i turn off social media and i don't get interrupted but i get interrupted so often that yeah i i was lucky if half of my time was really productive that's pretty common so i think as as you become a freelancer or consultant you can kind of use that to your advantage up the rates lower the hours and still keep money coming in yep but again not, you know it's billable time plus whatever else it takes to keep your business running I'm also curious, you said you have plenty of leads and stuff coming in. How do you find your clients? Is it mostly referrals at this point? or? Yeah, so I talked about you know the lesson I learned getting to the staff hog thing where people I knew were getting direct clients by just going out there and networking, knowing the developers in the community. So I, I've been doing that for years, going to meetups, user groups, things like that. So I've got a pretty good kind of network of just the local developers in different areas. So if they need it, if they know someone who needs an iOS developer, a lot of times they get referred to me. That's one way. But I think a lot of it's turning business. You know, people that know I do a good job, I've worked with them in different capacities and done a good job. Now they know I'm doing iOS stuff. And they're like, oh, well, let's, let's have Jmar work on this. And I think last year when I kind of stepped away from the staff og role, I made a point to reach out to kind of the the better consulting shops, the dev shops around town, and say, hey, I'm here, I'm this person, I can do iOS development. And I got, had good conversations with most of the ones that I reached out to just from a cold email. And one of the clients I'm onboarding this month was just someone, it was a referral from that. And there was a different company that just doesn't have the bandwidth to do any iOS stuff, so they just passed on the referral to me. So talk to this guy, talk to James. So it, it's a mix of things. And yeah, I'm out there speaking, conferences, things like that. That just kind of raises your profile and helps build credibility. So if your name gets flowed out, they Google it. Good things show up versus you know ranting on Twitter over something. Very nice, and that's that's kind of what I do too. You know, I get out there in the community and talk to people. One other thing that worked out really nicely for me, I used to do a video series called Teach Me to Code. I'm actually going to start it up again here within the next few weeks. And what I did there. I'm changing the approach a little bit, but what I did there was I would actually, it was a blend of 
here's how you use this feature of whatever programming thing I was doing at the time. So, you know, I have some on Backbone, CoffeeScript, Rails, lots on Rails. And there were a few in there that was, here's how you build this app in Rails. And I can't tell you how many leads I got off of that, you know, if it was a popular type of application. I mean, Twitter clones, I still get every once in a while, somebody go, you know, emails me and says, hey, I saw your video on how to build a Twitter clone and I want a Twitter clone. I pick up that work and, and do the work for them, you know. And so that was very handy because, you know, I had non-technical people watching a technical video and then saying, well, that's what I need. So quality of leads over that, how, how would you say? Almost every person that emailed me, I wound up closing. Awesome. So good projects. Yeah, it worked out really well. Another one that, that worked out for a couple, I didn't get as many leads off of it, but I still, you know, they were high quality leads. And and the reason that this works, the, the social media or new media stuff, you know, the podcasts and stuff, I had a podcast called Rails Coach and I would just talk for five to 10 minutes about some concept with Rails. And uh, I got one, maybe two leads off of that that I closed. And again, it was, they, they listened to it. You know, they started picking up Rails. They found my information helpful, but decided that they didn't have the expertise and weren't going to grow to have the expertise to do what they wanted within the time frame that they were wanting to launch. And so they'd contact me. Right. So what you're talking about, I've heard referred to as inbound marketing. Yes. Which is a very good thing to get rolling. And I, I haven't done that much with it. Most of my stuff is referral based. People know my reputation, know I do a good job, know I'm easy to work with. But if you can get leads out from the wild where people come into you saying, hey, solve my problem, that's a great thing to be in. So how did you learn how to do that? Or did you just kind of build these things, do the podcast, and people it, showed up? So I got into podcasting. There was kind of two things that got me into it. One was um, I was working at the time in QA for a local company here called Mosey. They do online backup. And my coworker, with whom I shared an office and worked very closely, bought one of these new little contraptions called an iPod and started listening to these weirdo shows on the internet called podcasts. And so he started sharing some of them with me. And I was like, well, that's really cool, but I don't have an iPod. And he's like, oh, you don't need an iPod? Just listen to them on iTunes. So I plugged headphones into my computer and downloaded iTunes and started listening to podcasts. And then a friend of mine, his name's Eric Berry, he started a website called Teach Me to Code. I just mentioned that a few minutes ago. And he was putting out these videos and he recruited a bunch of us in the local community to, you know, make videos for Teach Me to Code. And so I made one, I think it was just one video for teaching me to code for him. And then I emailed one of the podcasters that I was listening to and said, Hey, I really want to start a podcast. And he encouraged me to do it and was actually the first guest on my first podcast. And so I started that podcast. And then Eric, he decided that he, his interests were going a different way. He got into groovy and groovy on grails. And most of the, most of the people watching the teach me to code videos were Rubyists. And so he came to me because I was already running a successful podcast and said, hey, do you want to take over Teach Me to Code? And I was like, sure. So I did videos for Teach Me to Code for another like two years. And so, yeah, so that's how I got into both the video and audio aspect of things. Um, I think the videos are really kind of the more hands-on things that people latch onto. 
in the code space, and it's very easy to do visual things that are really cool for people who aren't technical. And, and, and I think that's where it paid off there. But yeah, that's how I got into it. So I just, you know, I, I had people that influenced me one way or another, and then I decided to take the leap and try and do it myself. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, what are ways can you do inbound marketing? You know, open source is one way yeah, if you become known. Are there any other, other things? Well, you talked about going to meetups. Now, are you talking mainly code meetups or like business meetups? I started doing mainly code meetups. I think like the first level of kind of developing your network, I, I would say meet other developers, people that are doing similar things. Start off with your iOS developers. Who are they? Those are great people to know. But also, who are the rest of the people? Who are, who's doing the back-end stuff? Who's doing the Rails? Who's doing .NET? Who's doing the front-end? Yep. But above that, you know, you've got people that are starting businesses, trying to run businesses, who have a different set of problems. I think the more you can introduce yourself to those type of people, the more you can kind of raise the level of what you're doing from being just a coder to being someone who's solving higher-level problems. Yeah, and, and that's something that I'm starting to do a little bit more. So, for example, a lot of my content is aimed toward developers, and so I have a very healthy developer network. However, I really want to attract people who are starting their own business and, and doing business-type things, and so I've actually been focused much more lately on aiming my inbound marketing stuff at business people. So, you know... I'm going to start blogging again and writing blog posts about how to manage tech in your business or how to hire freelancers or, you know, answer questions that my target market has instead of answer questions that my current audience has. And at the same time, you know, I'm definitely working on products that, you know, are aimed more toward the audience that I currently have. But, you know, do those kinds of things. So you get out there and you know, write blog posts that explain a concept that one of your current clients was struggling with. Or, you know, you get out there and, you know, write a blog post on how to do something right that they often get wrong. Or, you know, if there's some big thing in the news, like, say, a whole bunch of famous people had their photos stolen off of their phone, you know, just just to pick something out of the air that may have happened recently. You know, so you can write blog posts around that, you know, and around web security and things like that, you know, and, and just take advantage of that, you know. So people are thinking about, okay, well, you know, that service, I, I think the current uh, theory is that it's iCloud, which is Apple. So if Apple can screw up their security or, you know, last year it was Adobe with the passwords, right? If Adobe can screw up their password stuff, then how do I protect my stuff? You know, how do I protect my customer's information? And so you can talk about that, you know, so you, you talk about en encryption and explain what encryption is and how it's used. You know, they may not be technical enough to implement it, but just knowing that you understand that and understand the concerns there is a big deal. Or if you want to work with medical people, I mean, I went to the doctor's office the other day and, or the ophthalmologist actually, and I learned my vision isn't, isn't as good as it used to be. I actually had to get glasses. But besides that, you know, I was talking to the lady at the counter and uh, she's like, yeah, you got to fill out all this information. So I filled out the information. One of the forms was fill out this form to get access to our patient portal. Of course, it was a paper form, <laughs> you know, write your password on this paper form. Yeah, that makes me feel good. Anyway, so I, I handed it back to her and I said, so you have a patient portal? And she's like, yeah. I said, are you trying to meet meaningful use? And she looks up at me like, oh, you know a little about that, do you? You know, a meaningful use is a uh, 
standard that the government put out and is rewarding businesses that meet it and is finding businesses that don't. You know, and so if you can talk to these technical concerns that they have, because meaningful use is specifically about them using technologies, medical practitioners using technology. And so if you if you can speak those languages, if you can talk about the concerns that they have, then a lot of times they'll come to you because you understand their problem already. So, you know, this inbound marketing stuff and the content marketing is what I usually hear it called, can really pay off for you if you can because it'll drive traffic in for one thing, you know, if people are out there googling, you know, meaningful use or, you know, whatever website dentist or something and you can, you know, you can handle that you have a blog post that ranks for that, then you get them on your site. And then once they've poked around and read a little bit and it's very obvious that, hey, this is a consultant site and he actually builds systems like this, you know, then you can solve that problem. Definitely. I think the people that are making very good money, I mean, probably twice what the standard dev shops are making, are people that have picked a niche and they own that niche. If you want a website for a dog groomer, you go to this person because they understand your business. That's an example for my friend Gypsy. But it, it, it illustrates, like, if you understand the medical industry and what they're trying to solve, then you're just that, you're that problem solver. So if finding a niche, things like that's a, a, a way that a lot of people who are doing very well with hourly rates are doing. Just have a niche, you own it, you're the person they go to. Yeah. I mean, even if you want to just do general business stuff, you'll probably attract a few folks that are, you know. But, yeah, it, it pays off. A, it's easier... It's easier to be targeted if you are doing your content in the space that they live in. And so if you have the niche, yeah, it's, it's much easier to rank. It's much easier to get that attention. Anyway, is, are there any other aspects of this we should talk about before we get to the picks? I, I can think of a few, but I don't know if we really have time. I think there's a lot of stuff we can cover. I think this is a good part one. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, maybe we'll do this again. In the meantime, if you want more information about freelancing, go over to freelancershow.com. You can spell that with two S's or one. It works either way. And, uh, you know, go check out the content over there. We've been doing that one for about two and a half years, and there's just a ton of stuff. And so if you're interested in going freelance, go check that out. The other thing that I want to throw out there is on October 9th at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, I'm going to be speaking on AirConf, which is AirPairs Conference. It's an online conference. And I'm going to be speaking about, I'm going to be doing an introduction to freelancing. And I didn't want to just give that talk here because I wanted to hear what James' experience was. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be doing that, and I'm happy to answer questions and things if you want to get a hold of me. And uh, I'm pretty sure James is open to having you ask him questions, too, about freelancing. Definitely. All right, let's go ahead and do the picks. you have some picks? Sure. I'm going to share some resources that have really helped me get my brain around how to build a consulting business and how to kind of level up what we do because we start off as developers but the skill sets you need to work as an independent developer or freelancer can be quite a bit different. So one of the books that I've really liked is Flawless Consulting. It's by Peter Block. It's a fairly old book. I think it was originally written in the 80s, and it's not specifically tech. It's for any kind of consultant. And he defines a consultant as someone who does not have direct influence over over the project. Something so you have to do you have to do kind of you have to use your skills to influence. You don't have any direct, direct, a direct line of command over people you're working with. You know you don't have an employees. If you're a manager, you have employees. They do what you say. But as a consultant, you're coming into a situation where you have to kind of influence what gets done. But you have to work with all the stakeholders who actually have 
all the power to make the decisions. And it, it's a fairly dense book, but it's something that I go through quite a bit. I'll read through a chapter. He talks about how to onboard a client. You know, how do you set up the initial meeting? What do you do? You know, you do things like say something positive about the arrangement. You know, say, oh, I'm excited to work with you. I've never worked in this industry or I, we've never had a chance to work together. It gives a lot of really useful tips on how to handle the whole consulting engagement. So it's a lot of really cool stuff. I haven't gone through the whole thing, but I've gone through parts of it and I use it quite a bit. A second thing I use is another very old book. I think it was written in the 30s, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And this gets thrown around quite a bit. But if you're a consultant and you, and you haven't read this book, you need to stop what you're doing, go to the store and pick it up. If you're working with people, this is great. It, it really gives you the kind of tools and insight on how to talk to people about things that matter to them. Because we're used to talking about things that matter to us, to developers, clean code, things like that, which most of my clients can't sell clean code, things like that. So if you're working in the consulting industry, I highly recommend How to Win Friends and Influence People. The third thing that has really helped me over the past year, I think he's been on the freelancer show, but I've been getting a lot of value out of Brennan Dunn and his kind of series of, he's got a podcast, he's got a free newsletter, and I'm a member of his Freelancers Guild. I joined last year sometime, and I've gotten a lot of value out of it. So he gives a lot of, he provides a lot of good info on a lot of things that we're talking about, how to create content marketing, inbound marketing, how to kind of take what we do to the next level. So I've gotten a lot of uh, use out of his ecosystem so check it out and those are my picks yeah we've had brendan on the show before a few things that i want to mention really quickly we also talked about weekly billing and uh, value-based pricing on the freelancer show so we'll put links to both of those in the show notes oh i want to pick the freelancer show too that's good that's good stuff yeah i also want to bring up getting things done by david allen one of the things that if you get into freelancing, you'll figure out pretty fast is that the, the two major challenges are figuring out marketing and, and where you want to be at so that the niche is part of marketing, in my opinion. The other thing you're going to figure out is that time management is kind of a big deal. And so getting things done is, is a super, super way to get started. I tend to use the more electronic versions of things. He, he tends to advocate more of the paper and pencil kind of stuff. Just find a system that works for you. But honestly, it's a great place to get started. And then finally, the other pick that I have is I have the ScanSnap 1300i that's sitting on my desk. So I kind of ignored GTD for a while, getting things done. And so my inbox got piled up. And by piled up, I mean took over half of my desk. And so I went through all that stuff and I've been kind of going paperless. Anyway, so I've been scanning stuff into my computer and this scanner is just awesome. The software actually allows you to scan stuff in and then pick where it goes. So I scan something and then I reach over to my computer and I click on the Dropbox icon because that's where I'm putting it. But you can put it into Evernote. You can put it into just a regular PDF. You can scan it to... There are a couple of other options. I don't remember what they all are. But it'll scan it to pretty much anywhere you want to scan it to. So ScanSnap 1300i, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And... It's not a flatbed scanner. It has a feeder on it, and it's not very big at all. So anyway, loving that. And then I've also finally, I got this program called IP Broadcaster. It's on my computer. It's an Apple app, and what it does is it puts my IP address up in the, what do you call it, the, the toolbar at the top. And so I have it set so that it displays my WAN address, which is my internet address so that I can see what my internet address is, but it'll also tell me what my uh, ethernet address is. So, you know, just stuff like that. And it just 
checks periodically and updates itself automatically. So if I head over to the, the coffee shop, I can hook up to the Wi-Fi there and then, you know, it'll change. But, you know, I've done some remote pairing where I've had people, you know, need to get into SSH into my machine on a guest account that's all locked down. And, you know, so I just go into dyndns.org and change it. And then they can just, you know, SSH directly at me. So anyway, those are my picks. And I don't think there's anything else. So we'll we'll wrap up and catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash CodeSchool. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum.